What if it weekly? Would you listen here or there? Would you listen everywhere? Would you listen at the gym? Would you listen and get slim? Could you listen on the road? Might you listen with a toad? Would you listen on a plane? Must you listen on a train? Would you, could you while at work? Could you, would you while others lurk? If you listen, then beware. Some will point and more will stare. A giggle send you off your chair. But join the listeners you will see. You will laugh with abandon and glee. And each fresh podcast brings delight. What joyous words. A new ones tonight. Warning. The following podcast may cause confusion, loss of concentration, and uncontrollable laughter. Listeners should be cautioned not to operate heavy machinery, lift large objects, or participate in sport during the podcast. Holy crap! This is so exciting! Previously on Parfait Weekly. And welcome back to Parfait Weekly. This is Ryan. I enjoy long walks on the beach! Hello, I'm Jen. I'm Jen. (laughs) My name is Jen. I didn't want to tell you, but I wrote a smut about you. (laughs) I'm like feeling very (sighs) distressed. Lady Chi here. (laughs) She is the queen of the fairies. I'm not made of stone. I have cats that I am throwing away. Anna is in the house. I'm a hat rack. There's Voldemort and bad wizards, but there's also boobies. I'm Keza. Hello. We all use the shower to wash ourselves. (laughs) I'm P.S. I don't know where I thought the food came from, but I never thought that there were still arms. It's him. It's him. Mike. Mike, you never say I'm Mike. You're going to invest invest in Canadian or Russian shipping. All of the ice is going to melt in northern Canada, and it's going to open up new shipping lanes. If northern Canada melts, would that not flood the world and kill us all? These are really stupid people. Like, I have a lot to learn from these people. Boys and girls, there's a thing called erectile dysfunction. Oh, my God. Yeah, but there's also a thing called vitrificus totalis. Perfect Weekly, not only entertaining, but educational as well. (laughs) Who wants to see Hermione as a trial lawyer? As a tribal warrior? (laughs) I was born without wisdom teeth because I'm a higher state of human development. Hold on. You are the future of mankind? I've been here the whole time, but I can't remember what was just said. (laughs) Oh, Vicodin. I love the fact that she's Australian. The art. This is a momentous moment, and you're mocking my accent. I'm very, very allergic to cats, and my mother-in-law <laughs> is evil, and she knows this, and she got a damn cat. How many virgins can successfully ravage anybody? He's Harry Potter. Come on. He's a skinny, awkward kid who we think has ED. No, 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 we don't think that. You think that. Poor Bernard was struck and killed by a bolt of lightning. Okay, you guys are the ones who obviously laugh during people's funerals. I wore a really big hat. Why is it always me? Why is it never Chi? You never talk about Chi's breasts. He has his breasts are a fixture of Perfect Weekly. I ship Harry Ginny. I write Harry Ginny. I read Harry Ginny. Sniping Harry, not really my thing. Putting aside the question of sexual orientation. On Saturday, September 13th at 11.21 p.m., I fell so madly in love you won't even believe it with Harry Ginny. I think I just peed my pants. Please say that again. I felt something click inside of me and the second half of my life began. She really does love them. I got into a fight with a pit bull. I was hitting over the head with a lawnmower once and it ripped my pants off. See, you're in your underwear <laughs> whacking dogs with a lawnmower. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Oh, come here, I'm so sorry. Come here. <laughs> I just I just kicked my dog in the head. I peeled my whole fingernail off once when I was a child. First time I ever learned what an erection was. Seriously, I remember this very distinctly. This is like the Manhattan Project. Harry is both a 
Best Buy and a department head. George shot Justin a significant glance. From a memory charm in every one of the room. Shalom. You have reached Puffwa's resident Jew. She has like a whole sound system. I don't have a sound system. <laughs> she sounds a little aggravated. Are you a little cranky? For the God, Brian, if you ever, ever, ever make me cover a story with butt sex babies, I will kill you. Neither can live while the other survives. What does that mean? How does that mean? What does it kill the other? And Jen's like, yeah, I like looking at female butts more, too. So what? Women are beautiful. Doesn't make me gay. You thought Jen got pregnant on a boat? I've realized in this podcast that Ryan just lies to me nonstop. And now, Potter Fickley. Can I just apologize to Melinda Leo for this one? Because I was so on her about the erections. Now this week, I'm like, oh my. Well, hold on. Wait a minute. You're in charge here. You make a very good point. I think the best mm. line in this was he tried not to be embarrassed when she finally divested him of his boxers. I'm like, divested. That's the best use of the word I've ever seen. Rena? Yes? Rena, I've missed you so much. I've missed you too. Oh, this is so nice. Look, isn't this nice? What the hell is Okay, if I stand on the left side of the room, we're fine. <laughs> Do I sound better? Because I, I, mm. I feel wonderful. Brenda, can I ask, are you pro-Sue or not Sue the Hufflepuff, um, Susan Bones? I think that she serves a good purpose in this story. Rena, I really do. Rena, come here. Come here, Rena. Come here. We'll, mm. we'll hug. Come here. I was expecting for like 10 chapters at the end, she would turn out to be involved with Voldemort somehow. <laughs> so did I. I like on the other side, like well, she's a death eater. I've analyzed the problem and I've discovered the situation. What's actually happened is Melinda Leo has lost her mind. Well, you know, we've been talking about her and she's been drinking a lot. Sue, you're with me on the other Sue. You're our resident Sue. You must stand up for your namesake over here. So just let them have it. Pretend they're chickens, okay? <laughs> this will put you against Melinda Leo, but you just got to work with me, all right? I know it. I'm scared. I'm a hot half and I'm telling you right now, Sue's not she a real hot. She's been cast out. Get out. You know you don't belong. Bake like a tree and get out of here. Sue is not a Hufflepuff. But I, I'm there with you. This is episode 69 of Potterfic Weekly. Welcome to the place where the story never ends. be again a podcast quite like this one brought us together and started its own forum list where the hosts are all our friends all the stories told by Jen Will it drive Ryan round the bend? Part of it weekly, where the story never ends. Welcome back to Fire Pick Weekly. This is Ryan. This is Rena. I'm Keza. I'm Sue. And I'm Scott. I just want to say hi to everybody. I've been off the podcast for like a year and a half. <laughs> We're on our second of uh, five episodes on Lavender Brown's uh, Morgan Le Fay Final Reckoning two-parter. I picked this fic. I put it on the podcast, and then I wasn't here when when we started with it. But that's okay, because Keza was here, and she discovered bananas. Damn! 
So <laughs> everything worked out. I record the podcasts, and I see the little titles they put up at the top of the chat, and I saw the banana thing. I'm like, oh, God, I know exactly where this is going, because I put a bunch of women with hormones on the podcast with Ron's banana. So unfortunately, <laughs> it did not bode well for us all. Last week, I guess there was some issue with Susan Bones. Was there some wank? Thing? My goodness, the vilification of that poor little Hufflepuff was beyond belief. Dear sweet June Cleaver, Melinda Leo, not yes. so much. Melinda Leo. He wanted to throw her out on her ear. And I said, Hey, wait. That's all. Hey, wait. I'm sorry, Captain. That's all we've got. But no, Gen 2 is on her side. And I think well, they have won over PS. And you know what PS is like? When she converts, she really converts. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> Let's start with PS first. When PS converted the first time, we were all like, whoa, dude, like, this is, like, seismic. This is like when John Murtha came out against Thor. You know what I mean? It's like, whoa, <laughs> this is big. The next week, when they have another seismic shift, they're kind of like a flip-flopper. It's like John Kerry is running again. Now PS is converting. Now she's against Susan, where before she was with Susan. I just, I have to think that PS is taking her marching instructions from Melinda Leo, who is the ringleader of the anti-Susan movement. And unfortunately, Melinda and Gen 2 could not be here tonight. I offered to relocate the time, and, and, and they just couldn't seem to do it. Because apparently, Susan Bones is so evil, so utterly unloyal, that Melinda Leo has banned her from Hufflepuff House. Think about that. Hufflepuff has banned somebody. It makes no sense. We have two Ravenclaws and three Hufflepuffs here. Like, I have to tell you, what I think happened is I think Melinda Leo is just a very bitter woman. And I think Gen 2 is a follower, not a leader. And I think PS just has no idea what is going on and is just following Gen 2. That is what I think happened last week, and I apologize to our listeners. Maybe um, if Melinda <laughs> Leo and Gen 2 can make it back in one of the next three podcasts, <laughs> maybe we can we can find out exactly what she did that was so awful, so terrible, that we had to ban her from the house of the hugging people. Like, we tug trees. We're insane. Sue, back me up here. Yes, I found her to be a little bit selfish, but I did not find her to be evil. Are you talking about Melinda Leo or are you talking about Susan? No, I'm talking about Susan, not Melinda. Okay. I just wanted to double check. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Keza, I just want to say I salute you for holding your ground last week. And I haven't listened to the podcast yet, so perhaps you are a fellow flip-flopper. But I just wanted to basically say hi. Hi, Keza. How you doing? This is when Keza goes to get a salad. Keza? So I've managed to dye my hands bright red. Cool. Mm. Been playing with cranberries? Not cranberries. I decided that I was going to make some Christmas cookies. And mm. so I got this brilliant idea. I was like, well, I want to just make sugar cookies, but I don't like dealing with like trying to decorate them. So I was like, I know I'll get some fondant icing and I'll roll it out and I'll just cut it out in the shapes of the cookies. So it'll be really, really easy. 
I had to dye the fondant the color that I wanted it. I put it in a plastic baggie and I squished it all together and did all that kind of stuff. And all the other ones, when I did the coloring, it had all absorbed into the icing. But when I pulled the red went out and balled it around and worked it in with my hands, it dyed my hands like bright red. Like, I look like I've just put my hands in red paint. I mean, (laughs) and I have scrubbed my hands with everything from like turpentine, rubbing alcohol, paint thinner, nail polish remover. It ain't going anywhere. (laughs) I shake my head at Rena. When Rena and I started our friendship a couple of years ago, we gathered together the original hosting team of Powerfoot Weekly. And it was Rena, it was me, and it was Kim, who did not speak. And that was backed up by the fact that in our first meeting, uh, Kim did not speak. She had no microphone. So we would talk, and we would say, Kim, what do you think? And Kim would type. And so it was a very disjointed conversation. And I remember I was trying to get an idea whether the hosting team would work, and Rena and I were kind of talking, being the only people in the room. And at one point, I mentioned the Lavender Brown series, and she's like, I love it. <laughs> we can work with this. We can work with this. So, based on that, we are we are going to be discussing Lavender Brown for four more weeks. Now, Scott, I am to understand that you read a very uh, G-rated version of this fic this week. Where did you find a G-rated version <laughs> of this fic? On and It has several sections where Ron and Hermione are about to do something or other, and... He moved his hands lower, or whatever. Then he wakes up the next morning and is feeling really great and smiling at everyone. And that's (laughs) basically where it goes. Okay, so let me ask you this. Near the end, they're heading towards the room of requirement. Then it cuts to the sun coming up over Hogwarts. Well, no, he wakes up in the room of requirement and he's Uh like, Why am I here in this giant bed? Oh, right, we had sex last night. Isn't it wonderful? And it goes on. Was there, like, a shot of the Hogwarts Express going through a tunnel? (laughs) Was there anything in the version that you read that jumped out and and caused you to say, and I quote, Oh, my! In what way? I don't know. Uh, I'm sorry, this is what we actually do in the Hufflepuff common room all day, for those of you who are curious how this works. I just wanted to share that. Something's wrong. How, How do I sound? You sound better. I opened both versions now. I think it was the night of the attack on Hogwarts. Yeah. Um, something happened in Ron's bed. Do you know what I'm talking about, Scott? Um, they've been sleeping together in his bed for some time. He sort of decided they were going too far and they should stop and, um... Hermione, uh, not so much? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I think, okay, at least you have a rudimentary understanding of what happens. It's PG, like, they do sort of sexy stuff, but they don't um, mention anything specific. Okay. Like, um, one that I actually did check because, uh, something else in the chapter was messed up and I had to look at Checkmated to find the extra words that were missing. He doesn't mention to her that in his one dream, he was kissing her breasts. She doesn't ask how much lower at that point. Like he says, I started kissing you a little bit lower. And then I guess in the checkmated version, she says, what do you mean by lower? And he has to explain and his face burns up and all that sort of stuff. In your version, it was like, I kissed your foot. Or something like that. Like, <laughs> he, he just doesn't. She doesn't ask. He doesn't explain that. It's like Sex in the City on Lifetime. You know what I mean? It's like they cut the good stuff out, and this whole plot point's missing, and you can't figure it out. Just to back up too, one of the reasons I really liked this fic at the time, and why I recommended it for the podcast, and Rena can back me up because Rena was here in real time as this was happening. When I started reading fan fiction, I am one of those people that I I don't like change very much. Like, I, I liked, like, I've had two jobs in my entire life, and I've worked at them both for, like, ten years. Like, I, 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 I tend to stick with things. So if I'm going to read 
a fan fiction story, I don't want to read a one-shot. I don't want to read five chapters. I want to read 217 chapters in the same universe, preferably where things happen in the plot. Like, you know, I want to follow Harry around as he watches MASH all day. But I want to you know, <laughs> stick with the universe. I, I was on this this quest to find a lot of uh, multi-year fix, six-year, seventh-year, eighth-year. This story was one of the most highly rated ones on Checkmate. And it wasn't in Morgan. It was actually in Final Reckoning. About three-quarters of the way through, I actually um, I paid off Danielle. We were on a date. And we were supposed to go out to like a really nice restaurant because I had I had done something bad. I don't remember what I did, but the rule was when I do something bad, I have to take Danielle out for Italian. That's the rule that she came up with. I wasn't present in the room when the rule was made, but that is apparently the rule that we have. So <laughs> she is getting ready, and I am reading fan fiction on my little pocket PC for I'm a geek. And we got to a really good point in Final <laughs> Reckoning, and I remember looking up at her and I said, "All right, here's the deal. I'm going to order a pizza." And I'm going to keep reading until the pizza gets here. And I'm going to take you out for Italian like every night next week. But I have to keep reading because I was at a really good point. So I remember the plot really stuck out with me. Now, if you read this and you're a fan of canon, you're going to be like, oh my god, Hermione's not wearing a bra in half of this fic. And that that is true. One of the reasons I, I don't really mind that in the story is Ron is 16, 17, and Hermione is like 16, 17, and, and Harry is... 16, 17, and anyone who has been... Rena, have you ever been a 16 or 17-year-old? Yes, yes, I have. I have to ask her this, because she was once confused whether or not I was 15. There's a few conversations in here where Harry and Ron are, are in the dorm, and they're changing or whatever, and one of them will mention how far he got with his particular girlfriend, and the other one will run over, and they will, like, pull out a notebook with, with like, you know, the floor, and they will compare notes as to where they've been now over the shirt or under the shirt, and, like, they make check marks. That is actually what it is like like to be a 16-year-old guy. So I just thought it was hysterical reading it because in the Harry Potter novels, not only is Harry not like that, he never pees either. Like all seven books, he never once goes to the bathroom. So I thought it was cool that that was added to the story because it just made it more realistic for me. But on top of that, there's there's so many different layers to the relationship between Harry and Ron, especially that I just really like. So it, it, it was just a really fun reading experience for me. I think it's fabulous that, like, for the duration of the story, it's like, well, there's Voldemort and bad wizards, but there's also boobies! (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what, though? I love it. I love it. It's like, you know, that is how, I mean, and, and, like, I I have been 16 before. I have yet to be a 16-year-old male. So I I really don't know if that's completely accurate or, like, absolutely accurate. I'm sorry. But it's what you would think. It's like, it's what I would imagine. Imagine a 16-year-old boy was like. It really you know? is. And you don't know what you're doing, and you don't know... Like, seriously, one of the reasons I love the story so much is because Ron has no idea what was going on, and I'm like, ah, Ron, I remember those days well. <laughs> but unfortunately for me, it was like the week prior, and I was like 24 at the time. So... <laughs> like it, it, it worked. It, it, it's, Poor Danielle. It's, uh, I'm not going there. We're not going there. We're not going there. Danielle's like listening to the podcast right now, going, "Yeah, you bet you're not going there." So <laughs> it's it, so it's one of those things that it's just when you read it, it is absolutely. Uh, Scott, back me up here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were in the middle of a monologue. <laughs> it does work, yeah. I haven't actually shared a dorm with other guys, so I don't really know how all of that would go, but it 
seems true to life. It's it it does seem true to life. And like the like the do you remember the running gag after Deathly Hallows came out? We realized that Ron said effing three times, like e f f i n g, and we're like, okay, if he says effing, that means he swears. And if he swears, what else does he do? And it's one of those things where it's like you know it's happening off screen, but you can't see it, but you know it happens. Like Jack Bauer does have to poop at some point. I mean, (laughs) but you never see it. But then you're like, when does he? Because we see him all the time. He must. Oh, I've got the answer to that. Hold on, Keza knows where Jack Bauer poops. Keza. (laughs) (laughs) I was just in the thread before. Melinda, the person who wants to throw Susan out of Hufflepuff. Let's not forget who she really is. Um, She was saying how they never go to the toilet. I said, oh, what happens when it's in the cut? So you cut to the scene of like some guy interrogating someone else. That's when Jack goes to the toilet when you can't see him. Well, there was actually an episode. It was in the... I've watched the show very, very sporadically. But it's Audrey at one point is Jack's girlfriend. And at one point, Jack has to put electrodes on Audrey's husband's nipples because he may know something so he does that and then i think they figure out he actually doesn't know anything and jack feels horrible because that's an awful way to make an impression on someone you're hoping to ask out later in the episode and apparently jack says excuse me and he leaves the room and then audrey has a heart-to-heart with her ex-husband whose nipples are, are are smoking and then Jack comes back and they leave. And everyone was watching it in the room with me going, I think he just peed. Where did he go? Like, to make a phone call? Like, he never leaves the room to make a phone call. So we figured that was when he peed. Sometime in season three that happened. But, yeah, I mean, I like the fact that we literally see everything that Ron does because it it, it is it, it makes the story feel more realistic to me. And I'll make a Battlestar Galactica reference here. The way they film that show is, with the, you know, the spaceships flying by, they make it seem like there's an actual camera floating in space. So when they do the CGI shots of the fleet in Galactica, they shake the camera and they make it so, like, you know, that when the piece, when the ship blew up a piece, hit the camera, and the camera spins. It makes it seem more realistic to the reader. You kind of let go, and you're like, okay, this must be a real place, and there must be a real camera guy out there in a spacesuit. In much the same way, because Ron acts like a normal 16-year-old kid, maybe this is a real universe, and maybe you start to accept more about the universe. And I, I just really like that. Plus, I think, you know, aside from a few mistakes here and there, she's just a very talented writer. Yeah, she is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Monologue go, over. Go. Somebody run. <laughs> go. I started reading this from the very beginning, and then this was one of the first fics that I read, and I loved it when I first read it. And now going back and reading it a second time, now four years later, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that she does a really good job of capturing the turmoil of being a teenager in these times. Just because you're at war, just because there's bad people chasing you, just because your life kind of sucks, it doesn't mean that you can turn off puberty. And she does address that, too. Yeah. They have a whole scene a little bit later where um, Ron and Hermione both sort of forget that their families have just been attacked because they're busy snogging, and then they're like, oh, wait, we just learned this morning our families are attacked. We're awful for forgetting about that. And and then they have to kind of come through and say, you know what? No, we're not. We're not awful, horrible people because we have hormones. You know, I've never been to boarding school, but it really kind of frightens me if there's really that much sex going on. Let's just stop for a second and think about the JKR world, all right? You've got the Gryffindor Tower. So there is like an armed guard at the gate, which is the fat lady. So you get past the fat lady and you're in. And there's a bunch of kids aged 11 to, you know, 17, 18 who live in this place. And it's not like, you know, McGonagall sleeps in Gryffindor Tower and, like, walks around with a flashlight and a stick. 
You mean to tell me stuff isn't going on in there? Okay. So they have a great system. If you try and walk into the girl's dorm, you will be shot or whatever. So what if they go into the guy's room? Like, it makes no logical sense. Of course things are going on in there. Although Lavender and Seamus in the shower do kind of skeep me out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfectly natural. Just a little. I thought, I thought it was fun. You know what? I actually thought it was funny because I like the fact where, where Harry and Ron walk in and they, and they hear it and they're like, what's that? And they hear something else, they're like, the other one's like, what's that? And then they know what it is, they're like, oh, crap, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And it's like, <laughs> they leave, and they're standing outside the door, and, and, and Lavender and Seamus come out, and they're like, are, are you done? We're done. Are you done? And there's this very awkward exchange, and they go in, and they use the showers to the far left, completely avoiding the one where they were <laughs> talking. They're at boarding school, and there's, like, seven teachers in the entire castle. And, like, the entire chastity force of the school is an old guy and his cat. Like, I can't <laughs> believe that this does not happen on a routine basis. It's not that I don't think it happens at all. It's just, like, a lot of these stories that do the, quote-unquote, adult side of Hogwarts, it, it just kind of, to me, it's a little bit alarming. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll give you that. That's I mean, because... really seedy, I find. Yes. That they, yes, that everybody's exactly. just having sex everywhere, all the time, in the Great Hall, in front of Filch, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like... What fic did like you read? No, I can't let you get away with that, because this is how Melinda Leo starts. She she tells feels- one lie, and then she sucks from that lie. Okay, but sometimes, honestly, it feels like they're going to school at Bob's Country Porn Dorm. And often those things have no real plot to it's just an excuse to write the fact that all these teenagers are horn dogs having sex but i like this fic because there is actually a plot to it there's like voldemort's doing this and this has happened to mcgonagall and dumbledore and there's all these complications and harry's building friendships and they're exploring characters and stuff it's not just the sex it's too many of them that's all they focus on right the other thing is if there's 12 other fics out there that this one exactly duplicates the advantage i have is i haven't read the other 11 so to me this is right. new. So I'm like, this is a really good fic. Has anybody actually read the companion that goes along with this that's about Harry and Susan's yes. relationship? I kept, I, I was I was trying to say that before, but that that <laughs> I just read it because I thought, oh, I have to know about this. And if there's anyone more hormone infested than Ron in this fic, it's Harry. It's, ha- yes. it's Harry. Oh my gosh. It's <laughs> like you get this movies. because being yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like he is so completely fixated on Kool-Aid. It is not actually say at one point, I know there's a whole lot of stuff going on, but look at her boobs. <laughs> I know. It's like, yeah, my life sucks, but she's got boobs. <laughs> I know, exactly. I mean, and it's that kind of idea. That captures the 16-year-old male so well. Yeah, I, I, read, yes. those, I read those, I think, like two, three years ago. I, I didn't reread it for here, but it's a Ron Hermione story. And Ron is probably the character I love to hate the most because he's usually so freaking annoying all the time. I can't stand him. I really like him here. And the thing I really like about Harry in the story is he's gone half the time. <laughs> I don't want to read about Harry's love affair with Susan Bones because she's a blank character. She has virtually no characterization from canon. 
and you can make her. In, she's like Blaze Sabine, mm-hmm. but at least we know what sex she is. She, you, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, oh look, it's Susan Bowen. She's a Hufflepuff. She must love people, unless you're Melinda Leo, in which case you're fired. You know, she's just blank little character, and you can do whatever you want with her. Her aunt's the minister or the or the head of magical law enforcement, but there's nothing to her character beyond that. What I really like about this, and this mirrors my own life in a little bit, when I was around this age, you know, 16, 17, I had this cluster of friends that I had had for a while, and I was kind of like the quiet kid in the group. Believe it or not, I did not yet monologue. So, mm-hmm. one of the things with it... No one's this, given him a microphone yet. Yeah, you want this is all projection right here. So, at the time, I had this group of friends. There was no room for advancement. I was the quiet one, so unless loud people had a stroke, I wasn't going anywhere. I would always be the quiet one in this group. And I started dating someone who was from completely a different group. She, was, she didn't have ties to these people, didn't know these people. So, I dated this girl for, you know, three months, four months, five months. It was when you're younger, when you're like 13, 14, 15, you have those relationships where it, you don't actually have a relationship. You actually don't need the other person to do it. It's like, oh, I have a girlfriend. I haven't seen her in three weeks and we held hands once, but, you know, I'm very excited and I love her very much. It's like one of those things where you don't, it, it's it's getting the mechanics down. This is probably the first quote-unquote relationship I had in my life. And it ended badly, just like, you know, Harry said with Susan, but that was kind of my thing. I got to get away from the world I was in and I got to separate myself from the problems I had with other people and just do my own thing for a while. And I think I learned a lot from the experience. So the best thing I think Susan Bones does in the story is she's not Ginny. She's not one of the trio. She doesn't remind Harry of the time in first year when dot, dot, dot. She's separate. She's new. Harry gets to, you know, cut ties for a few hours every day and just be a kid and be a 16-year-old and be obsessed about boobs and just do his own thing. And I think that was why I really like that relationship there. And, of course, it ends, and, of course, it ends badly. But that's okay, because I disagree with Melinda. Melinda was saying last week that Harry had Cho, and Cho was the the screw-up relationship, and Lavender was the screw-up relationship for Ron, and... That implies to me you're only allowed to have one screw-up relationship. And if you're only allowed to have one screw-up relationship, I've broken many laws because I've had well more than just the one screw-up. But you could <laughs> argue that Cho was the first kiss that went badly, and Susan was the first adult relationship that taught Harry about love and loyalty and boobs and all That's that true. stuff. Christmas. Yeah, exactly, in the true meaning of Christmas, and then he can get to Ginny later. I find it ironic, actually, that one of the first things you said was, uh, the best thing about Susan is she's not Ginny. That's her major crime as far as Melinda is concerned, I think. Do you know Melinda Leo's dog is named Ginny? Do people know this? Do people understand? <laughs> Melinda's cat's name is Butterbeer. Who's Ginny? The dog. Other- <laughs> oh, for just her cat is... Oh, never mind. If it was fire whiskey, I'd have a comment, but we can get by with it. <laughs> At the end, it's actually the, it's, it's sort of like an epilogue bit where he's 26 and married to... Captain Catherine Janeway of the Starship Voyager. And he reflects on the whole thing with Susan. And I think that it's one of those things like no one likes having a messy breakup. There's parts of me that wouldn't trade the experiences that I have had for anything because it's important that it leads to like who you are and I think it was really important that he didn't need to get together with with Ginny straight away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's it. part of the reason yeah. why I really liked that relationship. The character of Harry is a very emotionally immature character and I, I think that even in canon it's like he gets fixed too quickly. You know, he doesn't ever have that real connection with somebody that just doesn't work, falls flat on his face. You know, he really doesn't have that because he doesn't really have that a connection with Cho. It's more of an infatuation and then a common 
trauma in the past. And this mm-hmm. story, it lets him screw up. It lets him be a stupid teenager and do stuff that we can all relate to with a character who serves the function of, of being a distraction, you know? And, and I think that that's almost kind of necessary because Ginny is too involved in everything. You know, she involves he, herself halfway through this section. Yeah. Well, right at the beginning, I guess. Exactly. This one. And she's so involved with everything. And if Harry had jumped in straight with the relationship to Ginny in this particular story, I don't think it would have worked because he didn't have the emotional maturity that mm-hmm. he developed from his relationship with Susan in order to handle that because this Ginny was also very damaged. Yeah. yeah. One of the really nice conversations he has with Ron, which I think might have been in last week. I'm not sure where it was, but he talks about why he's with Susan in the first place and he calls her soft. He's the, she's the first sort of soft, comfortable thing he's had in his life and she's really good for him that way. And Ginny in general in the fandom and in this story in particular, I don't think I could ever see her being a soft person that way. She doesn't, she couldn't give that same thing to Harry. Having had that now with Susan, um, he doesn't necessarily need the same thing anymore. He's able to move on. You could argue that with relationships, there's a very storybook mentality you have with relationships that your goal in life is to find your one true calling and that person will spend the rest of your life with you and and you will build a relationship with that person. And that, in many instances, is a good thing and that's it's, it's something to strive for. But sometimes you have friends or you have relationships that fill certain needs. One of the things I was just thinking about is there was a scene with Susan that reminded me very much of a scene from Melinda's um, Curse of the Damned. It was right after in Curse of the Damned when Dumbledore died. Harry rushes back to Hogwarts and locks himself in the room of requirement. Ron and Hermione are charging up to go help him and talk to him and get him through this. And Ginny stops them and says, he needs me, he doesn't need you right now. Is then it's like, you know, passing of the torch. You need to let me do this. No disrespect intended, but your time has passed for this particular function. And what made really a lot of sense about Melinda's story was that Ginny is what Harry needs at that point. It's a very mature relationship. It's someone who fills his physical needs, his emotional needs, like across the board. She's someone that just fundamentally gets him. In this story, Harry's 16. His godfather just died. You know, he he lives with these awful people during the summer. He just needs to have fun for a while. And he's not looking for a soulmate at this point. Although I think when you talk to any 16-year-old, 16-year-olds are passionate. It's their first time falling in love, and they're going to throw everything they have into it. It's just a different need. I disagree with maybe like Melinda's mindset on this. I just think that there is room in there for a middle person to kind of bridge that gap between Joe and Between Joe the and infatuation and the soulmate. When you look at what it produces from a story standpoint, well, I think my favorite scene from the whole thing was right at the end. It's after Susan breaks up with Harry and Ron goes in there and Harry just cries for like a half an hour. And it's not the thing you're supposed to do if you're a guy because you're not supposed to cry in front of other guys. And Harry just, he doesn't, like, there's a great line. Ron didn't know how to hug Harry. He didn't know how to hug his best friend. But Harry just, he just sits there and, and Harry puts his head on his shoulder and he just cries for half an hour until he's done. And then for the rest of the fic, Hermione and Ron watch out for him. And they, like, strategically sit so he'll, like, not be able to see the Hufflepuffs and you know, all these different things. Because they're not there. If you don't look, they're not there. And it's these great moments between Harry and Ron that I don't think you would... Well, if Jenny broke up with him, you definitely 
bowling when I get those moments, but that's, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> what did you do that my sister beats the crap out of him? But, you know, it, that's life too. Anyone who's been, like, I got dumped when I was 16. It was like the worst thing to ever happen to me. It, it hurts. Yeah. I think the other thing is, especially when you read Harry's point of view of it, is that she also teaches him something. She actually does serve a purpose in this fic because when you read the companion piece, Harry is worried that she's going to leave him. He falls for her really, really hard. He falls heavily in love with her and he's worried that she's going to leave and then eventually she does. But the realisation that comes out is the people that haven't left him and so he knows he can trust. And so it actually, yes, she heard him and, yeah, maybe her loyalty could be questioned there because she was protecting herself when you listen to her reasons for doing it. She was protecting herself. And it wasn't that she didn't mm-hmm. love Harry. She did. I don't know how it will impact on the next fic. I'm kind of looking forward to see how it will impact on the sequel. The things that it's helped Harry learn about Ron and Hermione and Ginny and whoever else it is that has stayed, all the Weasleys and all that. She provides a contrast. Someone who walks out of his life and the people that don't walk out of his life. That's mm-hmm. the big thing with Harry too, is that... He's got that Achilles heel where he always pushes people away from him. And in every story, he kind of gets over that. And he learns that he needs people if he's going to defeat Voldemort and survive. But he always filters back. When Harry decides he's going to Riddle Manor, which, by the way, is the stupidest place possible to have your enemy hang out. I mean, like, they would never think to look there, but whatever. Um, <laughs> like, I bash my head. I'm like, what is it? Like, they have the set left over from the fourth movie and they can't afford to build a new one? They just have to go back? They're like... <laughs> annoys me like nothing else. Yeah, you have a, you know, a situation where Harry is very adamant. You won't, you cannot come with me. I must do this myself. You cannot risk your lives. You know, blah, 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 blah. And it's the same. And he basically thing. says, well, screw you. We're going anyway. Yeah. yeah. But you know what? Now you have someone do to Harry exactly what he has tried to do for years. Someone has essentially said, you know, the very same thing. You know, you're, you're going to be someone who is going to try and sacrifice yourself for me. You jumped in front of a curse for me. I can't let you do that. And I can't go forward with this knowing that you might not be there. And, you know, Melinda and some others call that disloyalty. Susan doesn't have parents, as far as you can tell in the story. So she may have lost many people close to her. So you don't know how many people lost. Now she's asked to enter into a relationship where she may lose even more. So there's got to be a lot of demons on her end of it. But that, I think, resonates more for Harry's character than any speech by Ron or Hermione ever could. Someone literally that he loves to death has walked out on him. I haven't read the second part in a while, but you're not going to see him, I think, make the same statement to others that you need to walk away from me, I need to separate myself from you, because now he's experienced it. I think that is a plot point, is, is or a character point, is really a powerful statement. Well, and there's also the aspect that you can think about it, you know, from a, a diff- bit of a different angle. Someone that's had, as for lack of a better term, you know, shitty of an upbringing as Harry has... You know, he's always waiting for the other shoe to drop. You get that sense yeah. that no matter how much people tell him stuff, he's always waiting for the bad thing to happen anyway. And here in this story, you get, you know what? He's so afraid that, you know, people are going to walk away from him. You read the companion piece. He's terrified that Susan's going to walk away. And then she does, and he survives. Is there a line I haven't read in a couple of years? Doesn't he even hope that she's pregnant? He would rather her tell him that. Right. Oh, yeah, he's not picking out onesies or anything. Yeah. He's hoping if it's one she, or the other, I hope it's... And it occurred to Harry that he wanted her to be pregnant because that meant she'd have to stay with him, right? And then he's really terrified and he knows deep down she's not going to tell him that. What's well, classic so, 16-year-old? Yeah. Like, you have 
have absolutes. You know, I cannot survive without Susan. Yeah. Well, and and the thing is, because every other time that somebody has left him in his life, it's been because they're dead. He's never just experienced somebody choosing to walk away and not look back. He has to go through that because that's when he realizes this didn't kill me. This hurts like hell, but I'm still here. And I still have people that are there for me. And here you are, and you're still here, and you're my brother, and Hermione's my sister, and you're all staying, and you've always stayed, and I feel like, do I even have the right to be upset and hurt that she didn't stay when I have so many other people who do stick with me, even when I don't deserve them? And, like, even just to be, you know, I think we've talked Susan enough tonight, but just to be fair to the character, too, it's not like the quarterback asked her out and she dumped his butt. I mean, literally, they were before the human personification of the devil, and she had to fight for her life and kill a, a, a big-ass snake and almost was there at the dawn of the new age. So it, there, there's and literally... It's really scary, too. It reminds me of the quote that J.K.R. said, that Ginny's the only one or something who, who can match him because Harry's a very scary boyfriend in a lot of ways. And I thought that this author actually captured with Susan how much of a scary boyfriend Harry is because... Even though Joe Rowling said that, I kind of have been like, oh, I guess. But this author, I think, really put it into a story how much of a very scary boyfriend Harry is, because I never really saw it in canon. I think I understand that comment a little bit more now. What do you mean by scary boyfriend? Just like, you know... If it's a scary boyfriend things. to have, because, like, Susan couldn't people do it. People are going to she... attack him, and he's going to be going running off he... attacking other people, and he might die at any moment. And... He will <laughs> throw himself in front of her to take a curse. She could lose him because he's willing to sacrifice himself and all of that sort of stuff. I like that reference, too, to when he jumped in front of the curse for Susan, he understood for the first time what Lily did. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that actually did make the curse bounce back, which is the see, first time we've ever seen that. <laughs> Expelliarmus! <laughs> One of the best things about this character and, and the way that she walks away is that Throughout this story, we get kind of an unrealistic expectation about what you're supposed to do for your friends. You know, I love my friends to death, but if they said, hey, I'm going to go get in a bar fight, let's go, I'd be like, no thanks. Have fun without me. (laughs) You know? (laughs) I mean... For so many examples, we see people going above and beyond the call of duty, above and beyond the call of sanity for their friends. They follow them to literally to hell and back. And we finally have one character who says, you know what? I'll pass. And that's She's banished from Hufflepuff. I know it. But that's not, that's not wrong. That's right. not evil. It's human. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Are we disappointed in Sure. But um, it doesn't make her... Um, a Death Eater. She's a fool for giving up, but I just kind of felt sorry for her. I didn't feel that I wanted to banish her. Well, there is a fear there. I mean, what, it's for how many people may meet someone that they feel very strongly for, but this person has a terminal disease, and they know this person may only be around for a short time, and their thought is, I can't get too attached. And you hear that, and you think that's such a cowardly thing to say, because you're going to deny yourself this time you could have with this person, because you're afraid of what you're going to do afterwards. Although I certainly know people like um, my incoming mother-in-law, she was in a church where she's very close to the minister and the minister left and they put in a temporary minister for a year and then they would select a new permanent minister. She never spoke to, to the temporary minister. 
And I asked her why she did that. And she said, I don't want to get attached to this person because they're going to leave. And I don't want to form a relationship because they're going to leave. And it's, it's obviously in a different vein, but there's room for debate. She wasn't sleeping with the quarterback. You know what I mean? There wasn't that thing that, you know, immediately look at and say, okay, that was, you know, disloyalty to Harry or that was X, Y, or Z or whatever. It was, you know, I love you. I, I don't want to leave you, but I have to. And, hate me if you want, but these are my reasons. But she was either going to be like a Death Eater or cheat on him or something like really vile. She was really good for Harry for 87% of the whole story. (laughs) Man, that ain't bad. (laughs) I'm looking for Death Eater Susan. I'm not finding her. She goes there. She lops off the head of the snake. It's not until she doesn't see Harry in the hospital wing that I start thinking, "Mm, not so good Susan. But you know what really bugged me? was the way that Harry kept calling her Sue. I know this is petty of me, but I just, it sounded unnatural. Every time he said it, it just looked wrong. I liked it because... I with that. I didn't like it. I thought he should call her Susan because that's her name. I'm Keza. I have a question for Sue right here. Sue, as you read the story... And every time he said, I love you, Sue, did you look up from your computer and hear over your head, turn around? (laughs) 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 Part of it was because I was listening to it and and not reading it off the computer. But, yeah, I don't see her as a Sue either. And and that actually would throw me out because I was like, whoa, somebody's talking to me. Oh, no, no, that's not me. But we don't know her. How do we know she's not a Sue? (laughs) Like, she had three lines in the whole game. Maybe it's because it makes me think of Mary Sue. I don't know, but it's like she's Susan Bones. She's never been anything but Susan Bones. And to hear Harry call her Sue just really grated my nerves. One thing that grated my nerves was when and Sue, Sue the podcaster can back me up on this, when Ron would call Hermione, Miney. Oh, I my hate text that. Reader, my text reader caught it as Mion. And I'm like, <laughs> who the hell is Mion? And why is she in bed with them? Like, I was very confused. <laughs> I know, that wasn't through me. And for the first, I don't know, three or four chapters, I, it was Edie. And I thought, well, that is a really weird name. And then finally, it, it was spelled a little different. I don't know what the difference was. But finally, the text reader said Eddie. And I was like, oh, it's Eddie. Okay. But, you know, and then it went back to Edie. And I was really You're like, who is this lesbian that's learning with her mind? <laughs> Keza was saying that that was throwing her out whenever it referred to her as Sue. What kept throwing me out is that I could not, I'm going through reading this and it's just like, you might as well put a big neon sign around it that said, this was written by an American. This was written by an American. This was written by an American. I just, it threw me out. It threw me out constantly. Just the phrasing and something else about it. The one thing I'm getting is, okay, they have the house system at Hogwarts. They have the Hufflepuffs, the Ravenclaws, they have the Slytherins, they have the Gryffindors. Like, since when could the, the Hufflepuffs just hang out in the Gryffindor common room all day? Did that not <laughs> defeat the purpose of, of the secret club? Well, in, in that sense, though, the only time that we ever really see Susan in the Gryffindor common room is after the attack. Mm-hmm. There are a lot, though. Well, no, because there was the references to Harry was in the Hufflepuff common room, and I think that was before the... Oh, they don't, they're not in the Hufflepuff common room. They go up to the astronomy tower astronomy because tower. Susan Bones advanced astronomy stuff and has a key. <laughs> no, but didn't they... <laughs> Things that we don't know yeah. in the... In this fic, yeah. When we just know that Harry doesn't come back to the dorm and vanishes randomly for long periods of time. 
He's walking Susan back to Hufflepuff and then just sort of disappears off the radar. He's bet it's not slept in all year long and like, hmm. Well, the one thing I love about the astronomy tower, that is a multi-purpose room at Hogwarts. Like, seriously, you can get killed up there. You can have sex up there. You can have astronomy lessons up there. You can have duels up there. Everything happens in the astronomy tower in every fic I've ever read. Dragons? Yeah, the dragons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll let them go. Well, wouldn't that be awful if, like, in the first year, Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Neville, or whoever the hell it was, went up to release the dragon, and there's, like, 17 people having sex up there, and they're like, oh, my God, they ran back down, Charlie has to loop around with the planes and the hazards on. <laughs> Sometimes something happens in the fic and you just laugh out loud and you know you're going to like it. Ron finally confesses, this is I think from the last set of chapters, Ron confesses to Hermione that he, he likes her. And it took a lot of effort to reach that point. And then he says within four seconds, I love you, and your hair smells nice, and I'll, you get down the line, and you're like, oh, oh, oh crap, uh, Ron, calm down, calm down, calm down. <laughs> and then you know, he doesn't see her for a few months, and then they she comes back to Hogwarts, and she pulls him into a, a classroom, and they begin kissing. And all of a sudden, like, the lights turn on, and McGonagall is there, and in the tartan dressing gown, and she's got the lantern from Sorcerer's Stone. Her lips are in a thin line, and I've realized in every fic, her lips are in a thin line, and Dumbledore is older than he has ever looked. But anyway, her, her lips are in a thin line, and she's glaring at them, and Ron looks over, and the best line from the, from the story is, and like an idiot, he waved. <laughs> imagine like the lights come on his arms are around her they've obviously been kissing their lips are swollen Hi. <laughs> he waves in case she missed him he waves i, that was awesome. I will say this though ryan i guess a couple i guess i just finished editing one of the episodes where you talked about how you can tell that Dumbledore is about to die. Moving slowly, and the wards are weakening, and they're bringing in people to fix it, and da-da-da-da-da. And I'm just like, yeah, I think, I think, yeah. I actually really liked all the action scenes and whatnot, but the bits I really liked, I, I liked the sort of um, persona that Voldemort had. They're in the room, Voldemort's, you know, taunting them, whatever, and they all making a noise. And he's like, I cannot think for all this shouting. He's <laughs> like, yeah. And it's just this flamboyant Voldemort. I thought it was fantastic. And then it goes along a bit. It's the next chapter, I think. I, I can't remember what it is, but Draco and Lucius are having a bit of a conversation. And Lucius says something to Draco like, you're very disappointing. And Draco's like, I am happy to disappoint you. <laughs> I really loved the dialogue in those sections. There was some really good dialogue. But, you know, the best part of that, this second half of the fic, I actually think I preferred it to the first half because I really liked all the action and, and the way the plot got really intense. I'm reading along. And Bill gave McGonagall a significant look. (laughs) I highlighted that one. Well, you can never think of significant glances again because of this damn podcast. (laughs) But, But, yeah, I really liked this half of it. I liked some of the the, the dialogue and the characterizations of particularly um, Draco and Voldemort in that last little bit. (laughs) You could just see it. I like the uh, big overdramatic dialogue, but... There's just this one part that was like my absolute favorite, favorite set of lines just because it's so awkward that I literally fell out of my chair when I read it. They are curled in the afterglow and Ron is like, um, uh, did, uh, uh, did you ever learn what an erection was? 
Trot, do you remember that moment? <laughs> no, I'm afraid that moment wasn't in there. You know the bits I really like about Ron and Hermione, you know, deciding to do the deed? I was reading it, and she sends him that note on the pink parchment, and then he, like, gets himself all worked up, and he goes to see Bill. And Bill was hilarious. I loved it. He, like, gives him a book. He did get Bill. <laughs> Bill was He's read the book. <laughs> One of the bits I like, though, is, you know, reading Ron's internal dialogue, where he said, what if I'm bad at it, and all those sort of things. Often they sound the same, you know, all the, all the guys are going, what if I'm bad at it? All the girls are thinking, what if he doesn't fit? But this one had some really original... <laughs> I was wondering what the girls think of. Thank you, Kaza, thank you. Right. That's what the girls are thinking. Hermione says to him, I'm ready for sex, and he's like, thank God, that is so cool. <laughs> Just like, should be any more uncool? But then he's like... The full meaning began to sink in, and he realized he'd never had sex before, ever, which meant he might just stink at it. Then he remembered what Bill said, and he was positive he'd stink at it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I'm afraid I'll and suck at it. Don't worry. worry. You will. Just assume you're going to. He starts to worry. He's like, I'm going to be terrible, and I'm going to be bad at it, and I'm going to look really ugly without my clothes on. <laughs> I was just like, this is so realistic that you know, it's not just the cliche thinking stuff because I remember thinking those same things. I won't know what I'm going to do. I'll be really bad at it and I'll look terrible because I'll be naked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of things that I thought. So I just love that part. Well, you know what I love about, the, about very- fan fiction? If you read enough, you eventually stop caring. And kind of like you get the sense the character, because they've relived these events 18,000 times, they're just getting a little tired. Like, how many fics have you read where <laughs> Bill is the protective older brother, and he is, I must set a good example, and I must do all these different things, because I'm the <laughs> eldest son. And Ron comes to the door, and he's like, I don't know what to do. He's like, here's a book, have fun. He slams the door in his face. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, but, but he doesn't just say, he's not just saying, oh, well, I, I don't feel like talking to you. He's like, mid-coitus, come on. He's not rude. You're that lucky that so- you didn't have to talk to Dad, but you're. Un- I was lucky when I talked to Dad because he wasn't in the middle of it with Mom at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually the scene where he's in his office. It's way, way earlier in the book. It's well before when they actually do the deed. And he's talking to Ron. He's like, now, have you yet? No. Okay. Now, remember, Mom and Dad are very fertile, so whatever you do, use birth control, for the love of God. (laughs) (laughs) When they're on the Quidditch grounds, which I find an incredibly romantic place to, you know, together with the young lady. And Hermione is, like, spasming across the grounds. And then Ron, you know, brilliant Mensa kid that he is, is like, um, did you? It's like, I'm like, uh, what? It just, it, I love, people are yeah. talking about the banana conversation from the last episode. <laughs> Renna, do you remember the banana? Incident? Oh, I have no idea what you're talking every about. Time Eddie, every time Eddie Carmichael would stare at Hermione's cleavage, Ron's in the Great Hall, and he would have a banana in his hand, and he would squeeze it, and the banana would explode everywhere. <laughs> I'm smelling what you're stepping in. Okay. Oh, oh, that was inappropriate. <laughs> what? <laughs> I like the. Uh, it's a colloquialism. It means I get where you're going. Come I on. Know what the hell it means. Scott, what do you like? Um, you can tell some of the things from reading this where fandom was at the time. Um, Ron is a seer. 
For one, that was a big thing for a while. Ron would be a seer because all his little joking comments seemed to come true. And one of the ones that's a little more off the wall, it's not actually true in the story, but right before that whole conversation, actually, Bill comes into the hospital wing and tells Ron, okay, you have to come up to the headmaster's office. He's back and he wants to see you. Who wants to see me? Dumbledore wants to see me? No, the giant squid. Of course Dumbledore wants to see you. I can't even remember where it comes from, where Dumbledore is the giant squid. So I was amused by that. <laughs> oh, so yeah. That one, but I actually thought that <clears throat> Dumbledore was Harry for like a year and a half. That was that was well before Pansy Parkinson was a garden gnome, but I was convinced that Dumbledore and Harry won the same. Oh, not Dumbledore and Ron? That one went on for a while. No, I've never got that one. I always thought it was Dumbledore and Harry. Can I just ask a question? One thing rang false to me reading this, and actually I like almost like called Danielle and woke her up to tell her what I read, because Danielle would get a good laugh out of it. She was mentioning in the previous podcast that 98% of the sex scenes in fanfiction were written by 14-year-olds who have never dreamt of sex. There was a moment where Harry was discussing his first time with Susan, and he says, you know, it wasn't that great for her, because it, it, was, it was very, very painful. But then they waited like five minutes and tried it again, and it worked fine. <laughs> it's magic virgin powers. I mean, come on. I'm sitting here, and I'm like, huh. <laughs> Somehow, I think she would have taken the rest of the day off. It's the magic of of your first time. I mean, come on. Every fic that's like that, it's never, you know, they have sex for the first time, and then she's like, okay, you are not touching me again, ever. And then you have to go back to square one, and you talk yourself, you know. You did this to me! You don't see that. It has to be all magical and perfect and beautiful. And at least in this one, she says, well, it wasn't good the first time. But then all of a sudden it's blah, you know? Yeah, right. Whatever. That's so unrealistic. Well, all I have to say is this. One minute, oh boy. One minute, and he was so proud of himself. (laughs) And then he gets to the, what is it, like one of the next times, and he gets to five minutes, and he's like, I'm king of the world! I love the scene when when Ron walks into the Great Hall and is like, Good morning, Hogwarts! And he's hugging Draco. And he's like patting all the first years on the head, including the one first year who apparently was six years old and wanted to call her mommy and her daddy, which I thought was a little weird for a 12-year-old, but whatever. Not necessarily. I mean, think about it. These kids have just been through a pretty traumatic experience. That's fair. I would want to talk to my mom. I mean, <laughs> that's true. Although I, I am glad that Ron decided to put some pants on before he answered. That's like the oddest situation ever in that room. Well, then if you play the Order of the Phoenix video game, you're like, this thing is smaller than a twin. But the thing I really liked about that scene was when, I think it was Ron was like, Hermione, we can't. There's like seven other people in the room. And I'm like, you almost just did it on the Quidditch pitch. <laughs> sure that is. Like, come on. Come on <laughs> that comment that you just made, it reminded me of this book that I read. Mm-hmm. And, like, the two characters that are in love, they're basically doing it all over town. Like, he goes down on her on a dock. And they have sex on his car and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then she uses the sex scenes in a book. And he's like, you aired our dirty laundry. You put our private stuff in this. And she's just like, what private? (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) That was kind of my thoughts on that scene, too. It was like, okay, so going around on the Quidditch pitch where anybody who just happens to be looking out the damn fool window is going to be able to see you. Okay. Well, I really like the moment at the beginning of the story where McGonagall's running around and she is the chastity police. You can picture the montage, like, with Umbridge from Order of the Phoenix when she's walking around and she has a little montage. Picture McGonagall with, like, the welding hat on and she's welding shut the door to the r- room of requirement. 
<laughs> yeah. I thought that was a very creative characterization. Yes, but we, as we know, the remove requirement always shows up when it is needed, so I don't think welding it shut would do any good. When Percy writes, poor Percy who lost the use of his feet, writes the letter to Ron saying, you know, there's this room. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say, I do have to say that I really like the way that they reconciled with Percy. I really do like that. I like that it's the accident that forces Ron to take that first step. I thought it was very, very spooky. I'm reading along and all of a sudden a wall falls on Percy and I'm like, ooh. And then later on, when fighting the Death Eaters, a chandelier falls. She wrote Jeffrey Hallow. Yeah, rocks fall, everyone dies. That's what... You they tried it on Voldemort, but it didn't work as well. I love the part where Bellatrix is hovering under the chandelier. I'm like, oh, oh no. Oh, you <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid bitch. That's not going to work out well for you. Hey, hey, can anyone explain this to me? I think I have missed something, although I read it very, very carefully. It's Bellatrix was Eddie. Yes. And yes. she killed him yes. and then buried him, which I find odd. I'm thinking I can't imagine her bothering to bury anybody. She would just, like, leave him there to rot. Her entire deception was based on nobody figuring out that she took over Eddie's... Oh, well, that's true. I didn't think of that. I haven't been watching enough CSI. So, anyway, Luna is being beaten up, and they rescue Luna, and Ron's got the weird book thing going on, and that, yeah. And Luna says something about Eddie, and do you think at that point she was saying, don't go looking for Eddie because she's worked out that he's not Eddie? Well, I think probably when they got... I took it that Eddie was supposedly, quote-unquote, kidnapped as well. I took it that either Eddie was the one to kidnap her and then was revealed to be Bellatrix, so she was trying to warn them about about Eddie. Luna knew during her captivity she didn't actually want them to go and find Eddie, but she was too weak to stop them. Because I got really confused at first in that room where they find him and then I think because Ron was still being befuddled from the book it took a while to figure out <laughs> what what was going on but from what I gather Luna knew she couldn't warn them because she was too weak and they get caught because Eddie is actually yeah. Bellatrix and has raised the alarm. All she could manage to say was Eddie's name and they thought that yeah. she was meaning hurry up go find Eddie and she was really meaning Eddie's a death eater get out of here. Yeah. Am I the only yeah. one picturing Marty Crane's dog right now from Frasier every time we talk about him? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't. Well, there you go. Now, try and take the fix seriously from this point forward. Well, now I have a question, too. Didn't they open one of the doors and they found, like, 15 dead... Um, scientists, yeah. Scientists? So why the hell are they burying Eddie? Yeah. <laughs> Why don't they just throw him, in with the, throw him in the death room? Yeah, she'd have to conceal him, but I thought that burying him was a lot of effort for tricks to go through. Could you picture, like, burying him behind the tree in the backyard in, like, a few words? Um, and then, like, leave. Well, but also, I mean, we know from canon, Barty Crouch buried his father. There was no need for him to do that. I mean, he oh, transfigured that's... his body into a bone and buried it. It's a little different, though, I think. Yeah, but that's different to burying a whole body. Well, that would be a nice scene at the end if Neville buried Bellatrix, like, in the backyard next to Andy. And they could just have, like, a running... Barty and Bellatrix are different brands of insane, so it doesn't No, was Eddie match. ever Eddie, or was Eddie always Bellatrix? Eddie was always Bellatrix. Because yeah. in the beginning, Eddie was just sleazy, and then around the time Ron and Hermione started dating, he became, like, batshit crazy. Like, did you notice the, the difference right there? Like, he became, like, evil, like his eyes glowed. I thought that he changed, but I thought it was because he really wanted to go out with Hermione, and Ron had snatched her away from him. 
But I think it could be that. It could either be that or Eddie slash Bellatrix could have been thinking that Hermione was still the descendant and was cranky now because Ron was too yeah. close and she couldn't figure it out. And I think she must have. Were so her parents attacked after that? If Bellatrix already knew Hermione wasn't, why would they attack her parents? Yeah. They attacked right. her parents because they thought the book might be there or something like that. So why I think didn't that they kill I... her parents either? Why did they let her parents... Like, they realized it wasn't there, so they just left. Why wouldn't they have killed them? Laziness? I don't know. Plot <laughs> yeah. hole. Like, I don't know. I thought that was a little... Well, because we need them for the sequel. That's pretty much the reason. Because why that would more angst in the story. The author didn't need it because you have to write her mourning them. And that would get in the way of the boobies. Yes. <laughs> That is correct. You don't want to have too much negative. Because it would um, be then inappropriate for Ron to fill her up. <laughs> well said. Well, you know what the thing is? I hate this in every fic I see it in. You know, they're in the Great Hall, and something awful has happened. So someone marches in, and they look grave, and Dumbledore looked older than he ever has, and McGonagall's lips were it, were so much of a thin straight line, like like she looked like the character from the Charlie X episode of Star Trek with no mouth. And they walk over, and you look up, and you your immediate thought is, everyone I've ever met who is not sitting at this table has been tragically killed in, like, a freak pasta plant accident. And, they, and you look up at them, and you say, what is it? Tell me. I can take it. And they're like, I need you to follow me to my office. I can't tell you here. Picture the Order of the Phoenix video game. You follow him up 23 flights of stairs. Then you cut through the aqueduct. Then you're lapelling up the side of the the (laughs) castle. And then you finally walk into the office, and you're like... (gasps) And then you sit down, and they're like, we're sorry, your parents have been tortured. Like, why couldn't they tell her that back down at the bottom? Like, could they have used a classroom or something? Like, that was the thing that always gets me. I need you to accompany me. And on the way, they said nothing. That's very unnatural. (laughs) Phoenix video game, if you have to climb the outside of that tower and you don't actually get to do anything. It doesn't lead anywhere. That noise, you have to climb it to get the points and everything, but you can't actually go anywhere. And you just have to climb back down to the aqueduct. Drives me nuts. Let me actually ask this because this is more of last week's stuff, but I just want to get to it. Did anyone actually predict that Luna would be the descendant of Morgan Le Fay? No, because I was very confused by that particular storyline. I don't remember what I thought initially, so... It threw me off, actually, because they mentioned that Ravenclaw had been one, Rowena Ravenclaw, and maybe it was one of them, and that's sort of a backstory point for it to be Luna, but I expected them to be trickier than that, and it was going, anybody but a Ravenclaw? Well, the first time I read it, I thought it was Ginny, because she hasn't said anything in the fic so far, and they made a big deal about how from 1350 on, we've lost track of her, and my only thought was, isn't Ginny the first Weasley female ever? Yeah. (laughs) So, that could be, like, a really good way of working that into the plot. Like, they're just all guys for 487 years. Well, but I think if you guys think back to this point, when this is where we were at in canon... A lot of people didn't know what to do with Luna. Mm-hmm. The whole and, book connection is a reason for her to be so vague all the time. Because yeah, she's got yeah. this connection to this powerful magical op- object that is not quite stealing her soul. And, you know. and it, you know, people didn't really know what to make of Luna. But they figured out that, okay, if we're talking about her, then this, is, this means she has to be important some way. <laughs> 
You know, she's, mm-hmm. she's, she's got to mean something to the story. So people, I really think, just kind of started plugging her in to just random places to, to <laughs> give her a, a fit, basically. And, and I think you saw a lot of fix around, that came out around this time where Luna was something significant, something special, something, you know, or maybe she was the bad guy, or maybe she was just crazy, or maybe, you know, whatever, but we saw a lot of stuff that really wanted to develop that character. Is anyone else amused by her parents' names? What was her... Oh, yeah. That was hilarious. Obviously, they're not not going to think up Xenophilius, whoever would, but... Right. He doesn't (laughs) seem like a Linus to me. Why? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, no one I always hope for, because we have Severus Snape, and we have Minerva McGonagall, we have all these very complicated names. I would love for Mr. Lovegood arrived, you know, at King's Cross Station, Harry walked up, shook his hand, hello, sir, I'm Harry. Hello, I'm Steve. Yeah. You know I mean? yeah. Just like, Bob. Do you have Bob, Bob opted? Bob, Pufflepuff. <laughs> and right now is twitching somewhere over in Dangerverse, the alarm going off. <laughs> Well, I'm a high. Uh, you read, oh, oh, on Dangerverse, did you read the latest chapter where you guys make the appearance? Yes, I did. Yes. And for, the, for those of you who um, are familiar with the Dangerverse, if you read chapter 36 of Anne Walsh's current fic, Facing Danger, there is a scene where Katie Chi and Ryan, whatever the hell my last name is, are are battling each other. And at one point, she, Katie, shoots Ryan. And he, like, falls backwards onto a giant toilet, which explodes from under him. And he goes, like, I'm like... <laughs> you had the giant hugging spell. That was fun. What did I even do to Anne? I pissed Anne off one night. I'm waiting for the one where on the last day of school, Katie Chi and, and Jen, whatever her name is, are on their boat. They're going back <laughs> over the Great Lake. And boat flips over, and neither of them can figure out what just happened. <laughs> 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 That's going to happen in Melinda's next fic. No, in Melinda's next fic, I'm going to be the first one to go. It'll be like, it's, and the random Hufflepuff was shot. Like, <laughs> no, Susan will be the first to go. Susan, yeah. She'll yeah, take she you out on the way down. No, because well, Susan's going to die, Ryan, and Susan's casket's going to kill you. And there you that, go. That was unfortunate. It's going to be a Paul bear at the funeral, and there'll be some freak accident. No, the running joke was there was a funeral, and the widows in the, in the passenger seat of the hearse, and the hearse stopped short, and the casket flew forward and hit the widow in the back of the neck and broke her neck and killed her. <laughs> so the, I was joking, that's how I'm going to go. Oh my like, god, <laughs> that really happened? Yeah, yeah. It, it happened in Brazil, so the, the running gag is that's how I'm going to go. Can you imagine getting through your whole life and get hit with your husband's casket? Oh, it's just like a bloodbath in here today! Okay, so I thought it was kind of interesting that Luna Lovegood is now Harry's tutor in the whole wandless magic thing. Because even though it's supposed to be some kind of magical Morgan Le Fay power that she's got, it's another one of those places where somebody was like, okay, we have this character, we need something to give her, she needs a talent, um, wandless magic, there you go. Well, she blows Eddie Carmichael slash Belichick's the range across the entire Great Hall, and like, you know, she he like lands in Dumbledore's chair. <laughs> and all this crap. And then later on, Bill comes back to the school. How did everything go? Oh, just fine. Wonderful. Everything's great. Why, why? Figured it out then, because why else would she throw him across the room? Do you think that she had figured something out then about Eddie? I don't think so, because why wouldn't she yell, Death either! <laughs> There's like no rush. Something like Bellatrix was doing something to her mind. and I Lynette, don't necessarily like, think that's what it was. 
I think, though, that Eddie was asking questions about the book. Because by this uh, story, you get the idea that he knows who he's targeting here. Yeah. You know that this is Luna. We know there's something going on with Luna. So he's trying to worm into her inner circle or whatever, get to be her bestest buddy, get into her panties, who knows. But, you know, whatever he has to do to get her to tell him all about this book. And so I think at that point he mentioned something about it, and that's what caused her reaction. Because I'm a little hazy and confused. I think I missed a chapter somewhere, and I've missed the significance of the, the book. The story is called The Book of Morgan Le Fay, and I've missed You're something, not... and I'm not... Well, this is, this is like when we covered The Coven of Echoes, and Keza pulls me aside before the podcast. And says, "Can you please explain to me what what is up with the Covenant of Echoes?" I, that was the one point in the story I was fuzzy on. That's <laughs> a mismade point. But the book has like a power over Luna, doesn't it? Yes. 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 Yeah. Okay. Just checking because you know, I've been known to blood be magic connection thing. She's obsessed oh. with the book, and it has this power over her. She can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. Right. She's it the first the- one in however many hundred years this has been that has managed to actually destroy it, even though we know several of them before have wanted to. And doing that gave her, like, sunburn and a fever because what she was doing to the book was reflected on her. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah, see, I was pater- confused by that. The paternal grandmother could use it, and then Luna's mother tried to use the book and died. It did come through Luna's mom, but her mom tried to alter one of the spells in it. Okay. Yeah. I thought there was, wasn't there a line that her grandmother tried to keep it from her mother, or there was, a, I thought there was some discussion mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there, the whole thing was surrounded by huge wards, and, and Dumbledore was supposed to be the secret keeper of it, and all this stuff, and yet um, yeah, Luna's mother found it anyway. Wouldn't that just piss you off? We spent like 30 chapters of the damn book trying to figure out what's up with the book of Morgan Le Fay, and then they go to Dumbledore, oh, I knew that. I'm the secret keeper. Thanks, you jackass. Well, but it's like in canon, Nicholas Flamel was on the back of the chocolate frog card all the time. I love the retcons they put in these stories, where all of a sudden now there's like the long bottom library, and it's like the Library of Congress, but no one knows this is there because of you know, <laughs> never read Hogwarts history. History. Hermione's like, Neville, I need you to get me a family tree. And then seven chapters later, oh my god, I forgot to order the family tree. And there's I the know. Mimulus Mimbletonia being a plot point. Yes. They needed to, to use that. Oh, that's where the plant is. So many mm-hmm. people have used that as a plot point. Because they can't understand why JK would introduce something so weird and strange without it actually having some use. <laughs> it did. In the beginning of Order of the Phoenix, it showed how Harry was all embarrassed because Cho caught him, and then at the beginning of Half-Blood Prince, he was happy to be with those people. And I think that, yeah, that's all it was meant to do. Mm-hmm. I like the scene in this one where they get back to Hogwarts. Bill's firing other orders. He's like, Neville! Go get your plant. Ginny, go with them, because he'll forget the password. I'm already on it. Bill. Like, oh. <laughs> and then they come back, and they're like, Neville, I need a cup of the pus. Please hold you. He goes off stage, and you hear a loud popping noise. He comes over covered in pus. I'm sorry, I smell very badly. <laughs> the yes. And they have... in charge, and Snape's pouring the crap for her. like, do you want me to level it Just off? Like, level it They're rescuing Luna at the mansion, and Lucius comes across them. What's this? Lucius said wryly, rubbing his chin. Some of our brethren taking the lovely Miss Lovegood out for a nighttime frolic in the cemetery. It just sounded like it should belong to Snape. It reminded me of when he says to Lupin, Well, uh, Lupin, out for a little walk. 
in the moonlight, are we? <laughs> 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 just like... I just cracked up laughing, and it just really reminded me of Alan Rickman. <laughs> I felt like that line could like come straight from Snape. <laughs> One thing about the story I thought was, you know, like you have like a TV show that's maybe been on for like six years, then in the seventh year they get a new writer. And the new writer hates one of the characters and just doesn't know how to write for that character, so they always arrange for that character to be doing something else. I felt in this story that Lavender Brown just didn't like Dumbledore very much. Because if you notice, <laughs> Dumbledore is off at a conference at the Ministry. And then Dumbledore has been badly injured. He's been attacked at the Ministry. And he'll be gone till well after the epilogue. And- well, I actually found when they're like, Dumbledore's back, I'm like, oh, was he gone? By the time it got to that, I'm thinking Dumbledore must be dead because McGonagall's the headmistress. I've forgotten that Dumbledore existed in the universe. He's yeah. like, he's back. He's back from where? Where did he go? Like, I can't remember. <laughs> well, it almost is like when Richard Harris died or when the actor dies. It's like when I watched The West Wing, the actor died, but the character just get killed off for like three or four months so the so the character is always in the other room or he's on the phone because the actor is not there and you're almost like oh my god Gambin broke his leg so Dumbledore is ridden out of all the scenes and then um, something happens to Maggie Smith so McGonagall has been badly injured Who's in charge now? Like, seriously, he's the youngest teacher. He's the newest teacher. Yeah, let's put him in charge. <laughs> What's wrong with Flitwick? <laughs> well, then the other thing is the other teachers to then feel confident taking over. Oh, I'm glad they're there then. Excellent! I've been trying to, like, skim through this and figure out one point where it was, like, screaming to me that this was an American author. The fact that he refers to his penis as Mr. Shaft. <laughs> <laughs> That would be another bit that wasn't in mine. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not like from My Fellow Americans where he refers to it as the first penis. He doesn't walk around saying, good morning, Mr. Shaft, how are you today? I think we need to play. No, but he refers to it like a person. Like, now I've got to get Mr. Shaft under control. (laughs) It's like, what? Is Mr. Shaft a new cat? Is he going to hang out with Mrs. Norris? I mean, come on. Oh, don't go there. Oh, God. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, my. I thought you were going to say something else then. I read a fic the other day where Filch is actually an inferus that just keeps dying and being resurrected and going around the castle because, I don't know, Dumbledore needs to feed him his poisons or something. I don't remember what the rationale was, but... The reason he's got such a horrible personality is to keep people from walking too close and realizing he's actually a dead body wandering around. There's a story, I can't remember what the hell the name of it is. Plotline is that Ron is in business for himself making portaflus. Because it's supposed to be like the, like a cell phone, like bring your flu with you. And he's manufacturing <laughs> those. And Harry has a kid or something, or they think I've it's read Harry's that. kid. I remember the portaflu. Yeah, and the plot line is that Ron is with Hermione, and they're either engaged or they're dating or whatever. And at one point, Hermione is polyjuiced and replaced with Bellatrix Lestrange, and Ron almost sleeps with Bellatrix Lestrange. I thought that was interesting, because in this fic, Hermione goes on a date with Bellatrix Lestrange, so I thought that was a nice bookend for the entire fandom itself. It's almost always Bellatrix. People like sticking her in everything. Well, because she's batshit crazy. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. fun to write. Well, it's so hard to talk about this because there's so many serious moments, and then there's... Boobies! (laughs) 
really is. You um missed what I said last week. We were getting to the end of the podcast, and I said this this Vic is just it's full of Ron and, and his hormones, and they're just oozing out all over the castle. And Melinda's they go, and they're all sort of puddles of Ron's hormones all over Hogwarts. That's why I felt so grumpy all the time. Just clean that up. Just clean up piles of hormones all over the castle. Black lights that they use in hotel rooms on like Dateline when they're trying to show where all the semen stains are. They need one of those on the red couch in the common room. And in the astronomy tower. (laughs) I would be afraid to teach up there. Like that was ridiculous. Professor Sinister must be a really sound sleeper or have her offices are on the other end of the castle or something. She moved into the dungeons because Snape is gone for so much of the fic. Okay, let me talk about two scenes here that are somewhat serious before I lose my nerve and we talk about boobies. One thing I really like about fan fiction is the scenes where, if you're in the Hogwarts years, and they break away, and all of a sudden, you know, Gambin has to film another movie, so Dumbledore's really out for a few weeks, and McGonagall's really out, and Bill's in charge because all the other teachers are pansies and they're all afraid to take over. And you have the thing where... Because apparently there's no reinforcements anywhere, you have the students are performing basic medical functions for each other. Like you, you're in the the hospital wing, and there's like a dead body on the on the on the gurney next to you, and your leg needs to be amputated. And like Dennis Creevy is performing the operation because there's no one else available. I can understand right after a major attack, it would be kind of, like remember like the morning of 9/11 when random people were directing traffic because there was so much chaos. I understand that, and I understand that if you're in the hospital wing, you know they've locked down the schools, so you have difficulty moving people out of their end. So the students would be taking care of the students on like day three you go back to the hostel and like ron is the one who's checking out ernie mcmillan's foot like i thought that was really kind of weird who the hell was it It was the hufflepuff was it ernie or was it um justin finch it was the the moment where harry's trying to take care of one of the hufflepuffs and he's like the the biggest problem i had this morning was that i I wanted to beat the gryffindors at quidditch and harry's like Mm -hmm. you know that was me too Um, yeah that was ernie and ron yeah was that i wanted you guys win because there was Griffin or Slytherin or whatever. Or um, Padma and Ron. I just want you to know I'm sorry for being such a crappy date at the Yule Ball two years ago. Is it just gives the characters an opportunity to act outside of the roles they're usually defined in. I don't know. I just I like any opportunity that you can do that as an author. And, um, and Neville with uh, potions all over him. At least that's yep. what they hope is all over him. I love that when Luna's making the the potion and she's telling Snape how to make the different parts of it, and she's like, you have to let it waft down to the surface of the potion. I mean, I could just see Snape's, like, the vein in his temple popping out of his head while she's giving oh, yeah. him these instructions. Was I the only one looking at Luna saying, you have no idea what you're doing, do you? Um, now, if we don't administer the potion within the next 20 seconds, Hermione will mm-hmm. be dead. And then she's, like, looking through the table of contents in the Book of Morgan Le Fay, and you're like, um, do you know what you're doing? Oh, she did have to change it from a gallon to a pint on the fly. She's like, oh, this is like the recipe that serves too much, and you've got to divide it in your head. I actually was just thinking when you're talking about Snape just then. You know when they're in the mansion and see that Snape's there? Because Harry's noticed that Snape is missing, and Draco is missing, and then you find out that Snape's Death Eaters. And there's always that moment, it's like, 
is the author going to make Snape good or bad? Because, of course, at this stage, with nobody knew, and I think a lot of people were writing Snape, as he ultimately turned out to be, on the good side, and Draco as well. They all write them to be on the good side. But uh, when Snape actually turned around and started being on the right side, I don't know how to put that. In my head, I could hear that. He's good, and there's gold at the end of the rainbow, darn it. What? <laughs> oh, God, I could hear in my head. He's good, and my- he's good, and you can hear Melinda going, oh. <laughs> I'm ready to fix it. I can hear the podcast in my head. I don't know if this is a good thing. <laughs> Well, my favorite was in the seventh Horcrux. There's a scene at the end where Harry is high to the railroad tracks, and Snape is pouring drought of the living death down his throat, and Harry is trying not to swallow, so Snape, like, holds his nose shut to force him. I remember thinking as I read this, don't worry, Harry, he's on your side. It's gonna work (laughs) out. And then 20 years later, Snape is rotting in prison after making a full confession. I'm like, don't worry, it's all a front. He's a spy for Dumbledore, so I never wanted to get snakes over that. Like, he could shoot Hermione in the head. I'd still be like, it's okay. Dumbledore wanted him to do that. She's like Claire from Heroes. It's going to work in a way. I'm still in stories. I'm always like, how are they going to write Snape? Is he really going to be good? So, you know, when he turned out to start saving the day, I'm like, yes! I am really eager, Heather, to see what you think about the second part of this story. Mm-hmm. Well, I am very excited to read it because I want to know what's going to happen next. I really enjoyed the second half of this story. Like the first half, like I said, I must have missed a chapter or something and maybe that's why. But I felt like it was all Ron going, I want to see some boobs. When it we're really like, was. You know? <laughs> and then oh, in the second half, he's not as obsessed with that. And so there is able to be the action scene that, and I thought that they were really well written. I really thought that the tenseness of the situation when they're in the mansion and mm-hmm. all the battle and all of that was just really well written. And now I'm kind of like, well, Harry has just been abandoned by his girlfriend who he was really in love with. And Ron has maybe moved past his booby thing. He might be able to focus on something else now and keep that to the side. And I think he does focus on something he, else, but I'm not sure if it really changes. <laughs> Although I found that part where, you know, this wasn't in Scott's version, but he's read the book and he's makes sure that he's going to last a long time by, you know, taking care of things beforehand. And then at the end, it sounds so wonderful and he's been thoughtful and she's having a good time and he's having a good time and he thinks, almost a minute, go me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, Bill did tell him, like, five seconds or something, so... (laughs) The second part was actually my favorite of the two. Correct me if I'm wrong, someone who maybe just read it. A lot of it's from Harry's perspective, right? Yeah. A lot more of it, yeah. A lot more of it. Which, honestly, I like that because, and people are probably going to shoot me in the face for saying this, you know, I could take or leave the Ron Hermione ship. I really could. If you mess with my Harry Ginny, then we're going to have a problem. But, you know, Ron Hermione, I, I could take it or leave it. I'm, I would prefer, no. I preferred this story if I had more Harry Ginny or more of Harry or Ginny in the first part of this story, you know, just to see them more as characters. But, I mean, I understand it's from Ron's point of view, but I really like the second part of it better. I like The Final Reckoning because you get that, you get from Harry's perspective. I actually found that normally I struggle to read fics that are not in Harry's point of view, but I actually found that this one really works from Ron's point of view, and it's one of the first I've read that I've been able to stick with that hasn't been at all in Harry's point of view. It was solely Ron's point of view. And I think it actually made me appreciate the Ron Hermione ship 
a bit more because when you see it just from Harry's point of view, it's a little boring. But getting inside Ron's head, I actually found very interesting and I really actually enjoyed that aspect of it. But I would be interested to see um, a bit more of how the author writes Harry's work. When you read canon, what did Voldemort want to do? Voldemort wanted to take over the Ministry of Magic and run for a second term. Like, That's I don't know why I like, you know, where he was like, I cannot think for all this shouting or something. I really liked because it was actually a bit more of an insight into his character, to Voldemort's right. character. And, like, when you've got it from Harry's point of view and he doesn't have a confrontation with Voldemort and all that, you don't get a sense of what Voldemort is wanting to do like in canon. Whereas I felt in the you're sort of new. I thought that bit was really well written, that you could find out what he was doing, what he was trying to achieve, and the bits all before it with the articles and how they were working out he was going to do, like, these diseases and things. It made him seem a lot more sinister than he was in canon. He wasn't just going to take over the ministry. He was going to kill everyone, and he was going to use any means at his disposal to do it. He actually sounded more evil and vile all through the whole thing. He's still as much of a drama queen as he is in the canon because those whole sort of flamboyant moments you were mentioning and how he sort of stands up really slowly and makes everyone bow and all that I am going to make you watch them all die because it will torture you. (laughs) You sort of care that you're still scared of him doing all the stuff that he's doing rather than just sort of watching some weird guy standing up on a stage or whatever which happened occasionally in the canon once. You have one I was watching on TV the other night the graveyard scene in Goblet of Fire. Now, there are a lot of things about Goblet of Fire that I can really do without um, the movie, but I really like that scene because I think Ray Fiennes does a fantastic job in that graveyard scene of being Voldemort. He's creepy yeah. and the way he talks, you may want him to empty tells Harry to, when he's telling him to duel or whatever and he's like bow you know and he uses that his voice and I like the way that Ray Fiennes does that and the lighting and everything is really creepy I just really like that scene in Goblet of Fire you different. can tell this is a, a well written Voldemort here because if you look at it he's going to torture Harry's friends in front of him and if you even look at the dialogue there's the moment where Ginny is very defiant when Riddle gets in her face and then all of a sudden he transforms himself into the 16 year old version <laughs> of himself and she yeah. kind of like she, she's pleading she's begging leaving me alone, leave me alone. He breaks her. And when he tells Harry, I'm going to torture your friends in front of you and make you watch, Harry's shoulder slump. He breaks Harry, too. I mean, that's a powerful character. You know, he's, to put it very simply, in this fic, he's going to torture Neville and destroy him. In canon, he makes Neville a job offer. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, just compare and contrast. In this fic, he wants to kill most of the muggles and, and you know, make those who are still alive, you know, battle each other and he will come in and take over the world. I don't know what he wants to do in canon. He Does he want to rule the muggles, kill the muggles, rule the pure... Like, I don't get the basis of the character. And one of the things I like about this story is that bad guys are bad. And if you go into a battle, good people will die. You're going to find a lot of characters are killed. People that you like, characters that you like, are killed. Oh, now yeah, I don't want to read it now. (laughs) Sorry. Perhaps it'll be Susan. But, yeah, but, you know, it's a fic that it's not one of those fics like the Star Trek episode where at the end of every episode everyone lives. I mean, Tasha Yard yeah, died. Yeah. Don't you try and tell me they all lived. They killed Tasha. That is not a dignified exit for anybody. What did everyone think of Draco Malfoy? <laughs> I will take this if no one else will. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm sure that this will come as a great shock 
to many people, but I am not a fan of Draco Malfoy. Really? I know. Shocking, I know. However, I really think this author captures the way I have always kind of seen Draco. And, and you will see a lot more of this as we move into the next part of it. But he is a bully that is hiding behind daddy's money and daddy's power. And the second he is called on to actually do something for himself, he can't do it. Not because he's inherently good, but because he's inherently weak. He has no power of his own. Everything that he has comes from this illusion that he has always carried about what his life means and how important he is. And once he realizes that he's expendable, his whole character completely collapses. His whole psyche completely collapses. And that is how I've always seen him from the books. Not as this tragic, oh my God, he's such a kitten underneath it all. He just needs somebody to love him. You know, sex god, <laughs> incestuous sex. God. He is a weak, pathetic, miserable excuse for a human being and in this story somebody finally calls him on it and we finally see what he really was underneath it all what do you think about him at the riddle house what do you think about the way in which the character changed from your stereotypical bully to a character that wouldn't relish in seeing harry potter killed before him do you think that was handled well in terms of the writing process i do i think that it was handled really well because even in canon draco has yet to be called on to make some kind of huge step like that. And I think she handled it really well because he's not a strong enough character to be able to make that decision. He's just a weak person and a weak character. And I really, I really think that she handled it pretty much how I would have liked to have seen it because she did make him into a coward at the end. And he still thought that daddy was going to protect him. Even as he's I, saying, I can't do this, he's expecting his father to come to his rescue. Well, it's interesting because you see Draco, he's a bad guy at school. He, you know, they're the tormenting Luna Lovegood. And you see him next in the drawing room at Riddle Manor, and Voldemort has ordered him to cut Hermione's arm and dump the, the poison into the wound. And he won't cut her arm. And that's kind of like what you said. It's, you know, when push comes to shove, is he a bad guy? I found it somewhat unbelievable that he would risk being killed by Voldemort to save Hermione because, like you said, because he's so weak, I would have actually seen him as sucking it up and killing her to spare himself. And what offsets that and makes it work a little bit more is the immediate revelation that Lucius killed Narcissa, which completely mm -hmm. throws him for a loop. The one problem I have with that is it seemed very rushed. It seemed like all of a sudden Draco, you know, is triumphantly pounding his chest coming into the room. I have beaten, you know, the mudblood and, and her stupid friends. And all of a sudden when Voldemort says, I want you to kill her, he's like, oh my God, I'm having a crisis. I can't do this. I'd rather die. <laughs> I mean, like, it seemed like there was a lack of a catalyst for why he would change so much. So then they threw in, oh, uh, dad just killed mom. Because just he doesn't want to get his hands dirty. And that's how it always has been in canon. He's not the one throwing the punches. He's not the one throwing the curses. He's got his minions to do that for him. He just sits back and orchestrates everything. He doesn't want to be the one to get his hands dirty. He'd faint at the blood. 
then when it comes to and they're trying to get Hermione out and Lucius has got her and everything and he's Draco's standing there dithering over about what to do about his father and Ron just sees things so much clearer and he's a, a stronger person and he's like oh if you kill your stupid father you'll be a murderer just like him and Ron has seen it really clearly just there whereas Draco being a weak person just doesn't sort of doesn't know what to do about it this is how it is this is what's going to happen get a move on and Draco's just like do I kill him do I not kill him he killed my did you like the significant glance when they coordinated strategies there? We're going to shoot Hermione and <laughs> Lucius, and then we'll wait. Glances. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. All right. In paradise. Okay. Let's set, let's set it up for a minute here. George has been kidnapped. George runs into the room looking like he was just locked in the trunk of a car. Oh, George, you're alive. I'm going to read the exact line here. Okay. George shot Justin a significant glance and then looked back at Fred. I'm like, a significant glance? Justin has uh, deducted that George wants him to memory charm him. Yeah, it's not like he's saying, can you make him a cup of coffee? <laughs> like, you... <laughs> it's like, take him out now. Like, how, did, how did Justin know just to randomly memory charm him? It's like, come on. The it brings up a lot of sinister possibilities. I mean, George and Justin go out one night of town with a couple of dates. They're like, oh, they do something, and then George gives Justin a look. He's like, memory trophies. <laughs> Wait a minute. So is is this really... Uh, what? <laughs> it's in paradigm of uncertainty. It's in paradigm of uncertainty. Justin... Okay, I get that point. I get that point. Okay, so, so George disappeared. George. Why? Did he go for a booty call? Is no, that the plot point? But, but George it's, can give Justin a significant glance, and Justin knows exactly what to do. You know, he's not going, what? What are you talking about? Hey? All right, I'll give you the perfect example, Rena. I'll give you the perfect example, okay? You're out on a date with me, Okay. <laughs> And we're sitting at the table, and all of a sudden, I vanish. I'm, like, beamed away like Star Trek. And you're sitting at the table, you're like, oh, my God, what happened to Ryan? So you run back to the Puffwa house, and you're like, guys, this is absolutely ridiculous. What the hell do you think? Just Ryan just disappeared. And all of a sudden, I come walking in. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Hey, Rena, looking good. So I give, you know, a significant glance to someone else in the room, and that person's like, ah, okay. And they walk over, and they shoot you. Oh, so there wasn't any just, point for that. Yes, there was no point. Oh, okay, all right, I get it now. From a significant glance. So is the George uh, in the house an imposter? No. No. There's some other weird thing that comes up in the plot after that, but it really has nothing uh, to do with the whole significant glance thing. Right. Their whole point with this big scene is how the heck would Justin know to memory charm the guy just from having been glanced at. I could have been brainwashed to shoot everyone in this room. Instead, he memory charms the person who noticed the disappearance. And we laughed. And la- so now in any yeah, fic, you've we gotta see, go listen you know, to it. Justin is the gayest character in the world, and George is asexual. So the, the running yeah. gag is they just stare at each other and give significant glances, and they... <laughs> Were they doing it or not? No, but just listen to episode 55, Rena. It's funny. It's amusing. <laughs> it's a really good one. The only thing I would just want to say on Draco is it just seemed very fast. I agree with everything Rena said about the character, and I can definitely see that's a, that's a good way to take the character. My thing is, let's even back it up. In canon, Draco is faced with the choice of killing someone, and he doesn't do it, even though doing it would benefit him greatly. 
The issue I have, or the difference I have, is in canon, he has this entire year to work up to it, and you, you see him crying and moaning Myrtle, Myrtle's bathroom, and he knows if he does this, there's a very good chance he'll be killed. So there's so there, there's some trepidation before he even gets up on the astronomy tower. Here it's a little weird because you see Draco, you know, threatening um, Luna and threatening Ron, and when there's the attack on the Ministry, he's smiling and smirking across the Great Hall, and then he's, like, puffing his chest out when he walks into the drawing room at, at the Fiddle Manor, and then when they say, okay, kill Hermione, then he has a crisis of faith, like, on the spot, and they throw in, oh, by the way, Dad just killed Mom as a way of greasing the skids a little bit towards him refusing to go along and switching sides. You almost have to believe there was this entire story happening off-screen with him, but the foreshadowing and the plot just didn't really imply that because he just seemed very smug up until the moment he refused to do it. I know what you're saying. He's a weak character. It just felt a little unnatural to me, but it goes places, so we'll see. It <laughs> does definitely go places, and I'm really interested to see what Keza thinks of... I really am, too. And Draco's the, the character. Thing is, though, the thing that may put a kink in your plans is that I'm actually not on the podcast for the next next week. Oh, we'll pull you in. We'll definitely pull you in. <laughs> Please. Renelle, let me ask you a question without giving anything away. What do you think of the seventh year Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher as a character? You know, I am completely fascinated by her. Him. It. I didn't I didn't like her when I read it the first time because I thought she was way over the top. By the end of the story, I really liked the character. So it was like one of those things I liked the character in spite of myself <laughs> trying not to like the character, which I thought was really cool. And the thing, too, is um, it was supposed to be a trilogy, and it was abandoned very early on in the third part, but you won't miss anything from the quality of what actually came out. I think it was probably a good thing it got abandoned because it just didn't, wasn't doing anything for me. So, so that's all I get for tonight. I continue to be a big fan of this fic just because the characters are very real. They're definitely 16-year-old guys. I think adding in a lot of the sexual components gives you the ability to have great scenes you wouldn't have elsewhere. And I'm not talking about the shower scene, you perverts. I'm talking about the scene where <laughs> Harry cries on Ron's shoulder. Calm down. And I'm definitely looking forward to what Keza thinks next. Will she flip-flop, perhaps? One of the most important things about it is that you get this sense of intimacy, not just in a sexual sense with these characters yeah. in this story. You get a, a very real sense of of intimacy between, you know, between friends, between family. You know, she did an excellent job of of tying these things together. And, and it's, it's, it's almost a shame that she did leave the fandom because I think she was a very talented, uh, storyteller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I've been really enjoying, like, I haven't noticed, um, all the Americanisms. Like I, I know they're there, but they didn't throw me out of the story like they often do. I, um, I didn't notice any of the plot holes <laughs> that you all were talking about. I just didn't yeah. see any because I just felt that, the story that she had and the plot that she had was, whether it's in 11 other fix or not, it's not something that I've read before. I think her Ron point of view is fantastic in that it really made me want to find out what Ron was thinking. And I think she's really connected the characters together. And you see Ron's concern for Hermione and his concern for Harry and his concern for Bill and Ginny and all the people that he's close with. And I think she's just mm-hmm. written it really well. And you do get that um, sense of intimacy regardless. I, having read the book without the actual sex scenes in it, and it's still... Um, yeah, what did you think of this whole experience? <laughs> so, if you're a little weirded out by that whole idea about 
Hermione and Ron actually having sex. You can go read it on Snuggle, and that's not actually in there, and it still works quite Hermione well. Hermione has no breasts during the entire story. No breasts whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she does. He, he, he notices those. Time or two. Or three. Or seven. <laughs> don't stare. Don't look. Don't look. Don't look. Oh, I'm looking. Oh, no, no. Don't look. Don't look. It's like, don't look at their breasts. Don't look at their... No, can I just tell you the best scene in the entire thing is when... Okay. I have it right here. You have it. Just to sum it up for you guys, whenever any 16... If you're 16 and you're listening to this and you're a guy, you know if you've done anything with a girl, you're sitting down with all your friends and you're comparing notes. And there's a checklist and you are keeping track of who has... Like, you just... This is what guys do. And you, you... you do share with other guys what you've done for purposes of, of keeping the checklist up to date, but you shouldn't do it because, you know, it's, it's a private thing between you and the girl. And Ron does tell Harry, and then it slips out, and you have the awful scene where Ginny, Hermione, and Susan are standing with their hands on their hips, glaring at Ron. Harry is standing at Ron's side, <laughs> looking at the ground, going, oh god, let him shut up, let him sh- please shut up, please shut Ready up, please shut up. Sue, take it. I love that bit. <laughs> Oh, like you two don't ever look at breasts, said Jenny, putting her hands <laughs> on her hip. We don't, Harry and Ron both yelled. But they went scarlet in the face, and Ron's ears burned, and Susan and Hermione, meanwhile, took a step towards Ginny so that they stood on either side of her. All three girls now had hands on their hips and were looking archly at the boys. Well, okay, but we don't leer at them, said Harry defensively. We're not lewd about it or anything. Yeah, said Ron, and Harry only sees Susan's, and I only look at Hermione's, so... Yeah, and then it goes on from there, and it's like, well, as far as I know, Harry doesn't look at Hermione's. If he does, I wouldn't blame him, and I have only looked at Susan's that one time, and it's like, shut up, Ron. Shut up, Ron. Shut up, Ron. Shut up. Shut up. It's like, I'm not looking at them now. I think they're very nice. I've only touched Hermione's, and then it goes on about, like, Hermione's bra or whatever. It's like, And Harry's going, Ron, shut up. Shut up. Stop talking. Stop talking now. And there's a moment where Ron insists he's done nothing wrong, but he looks, and everyone in the common room is, like, glaring at him, like, the two people over in the corner playing chess are glaring at him. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, the one thing I do want to just leave with, too, is right after the attack, you have the uh, second year, who I thought was six, who mm-hmm. was you know very upset and wanted to call her parents. And Ron handled her very well, said, look, come find me in the morning and we will get my brother and we will call your parents and everything will be fine. And Hermione looks at Ron and says, wow, you know, sometimes you really surprise me because of the way he handled you know, a kid. Because usually he's the doofus who doesn't know. He tells the kids to shut up because they're short. Calls and them midgets, he, yeah. Yeah, he calls them midgets, because I was never that young. And then you look later on at the story, and you have, you know, now Dolhoff was the one who nearly killed Hermione the year before, and that wasn't really a big deal in order, but it was this story, a big deal in order, and he kills him. And we just read a story by Melinda where Ron kills a character, and he doesn't like that character, and he can't live with himself for it. Ron kills someone here, and it was self-defense. He uses the cutting charm on the guy's neck, so he does kill him, but Ron does kill someone. And you have the moment where Hermione is infected with the plague, and they are going to seal her behind a wall and just see what happens. And Ron, it's so dire, Ron is begging to die with her. Like, that's a that's an upcase scenario for him. So he is literally fighting to get his dying love out from behind, you know, buried alive behind a wall. He's struggling to get to her, and he has to kill someone. And you just see how far the character came from the first chapter, where his, his stomach is, you know, doing flip-flop 
flops every time he looks at Hermione's cleavage, but he doesn't know why. So I just have to say, I think the character of Ron in this story has come very far because he was such a doofus in chapter one. Uh, one thing you, you were a little confused earlier about how, um, Lucius Malfoy ended up being in with Hermione. She's yes. not actually walled up somewhere. She's just in the next cell down the dungeon corridor. Um, Ron fights with Del- fights with Dolohov in this room they found Eddie in, and Hermione is in the room next door because he didn't quite get there before he ran into the various Death Eaters. And okay, I guess Lucius ran ahead and was there before them or something. Well, wasn't there he heard the noise of apparition? Oh, no, that was when the order arrived. I was thinking maybe like Lucius like apparated in or something, but no. Yeah. I think that he went in there because he was trying to get Ron. The impression that I got, because Ron could hear Hermione and was trying to find her, and she was calling him, but when he gets there, Lucius has basically got her hostage. Right. But the impression that I got was that he was trying to lure Ron and making her call Ron so that he could get Ron. I don't think she would do that, though. But was that one question I just actually thought of was when they That's originally arrived, they get, they get to Luna, and she's yelling out Eddie's name, and they find Eddie in the next room. Why was... Bellatrix playing the part of Eddie if they already captured them. Was that more of a trap? Or was that... Because they could then trap them, because if they ha- are still looking for Eddie, they've got them in a room and they can't get out. Okay. She was still playing the part, because it just seemed like... Yeah. 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 It's another way to be sadistic and play with them, because um, they still think it's Eddie, and he and they goes go right into with the them room. to the throne room, still thinking Eddie's on their side, and then he turns around and grins wickedly at them and turns into Bellatrix, and it's like, what? <laughs> That's exactly what he wrote. <laughs> it says, um, Eddie, Luna repeated, hurt, a trap, they said it. So she, I think she is trying to let them know, and they just don't, they don't understand what she's trying to say, and she just can't. Well, because yeah, they think trap, she's saying it was a trap that, that Eddie and Luna yeah, got captured, true. but in actual fact, she could be saying they're using Eddie to set a trap for you. Yeah. I know, said Harry, nodding, but we have to get you out of here. Do you know where Eddie is? Luna shook her head and her face lit up with fear. Yeah, so. a, at that point, I, I remember writing in my notes, is Eddie evil? Because she was obviously afraid of him. Mm-hmm. So I think she was trying to warn them. I just assume that Eddie is, in fact, quite evil, and we'll just leave. Well, unfortunately, now he's dead, and Bellatrix buried him in the backyard, you know, next to the dog. Maybe they can bury Bellatrix with Eddie and just, you know, end the whole thing right there. That was bad. All right, on that note, we're taking off for the night. We get three more podcasts on Final Reckoning. That's three more podcasts on Hermione's boobs, for those of you keeping track. And Lavender Brown has left the fandom, so we cannot do an interview, so perhaps we will just talk about boobs for the entire hour. So with that, have a good night, everybody. <laughs> Good night, everyone. So hold on to the wonder that those books brought to our Keep each other safe. Keep faith. Good night. Hey, it's Lassie Lupin from the forums. I just wanted to give a quick review of the book Morgan Le Fay by Lavender Brown. First off, Lavender Brown, awesome fan fiction. I really, really enjoyed uh, reading the book of Morgan Le Fay, and I'm in the middle of reading uh, Final Reckoning, and I'm really enjoying that as well. Parts that I loved, I loved 
Harry's bravery to stupidity ratio. It, it was a nice balance between, he wasn't too stupid, but he was pretty dense and, and, you know, he often had that whole heart over brain thing going, which can drive me crazy sometimes, but... Uh, I really like the fact that Ginny calls Lord Voldemort Tom, because that's how she knew him first. And, you know, her first year is that she was writing to Tom, and that's how she thinks of him. But at the same time, she's, and I think that might come in later in Final Reckoning, of the fact that she sees a balance of between the two. I liked that Percy got hurt at the Ministry, like, badly, badly hurt, because you got to see the Weasley's reactions to... Percy, who left us and betrayed us, is hurt, and this is how strong the Weasleys are, is that they're willing to toss that all aside when he's really actually hurt and they're actually worried about him. Um, I loved, I cracked up when Ron was walking in on Bill and Fleur, just because it's such an awkward moment and Ron does not pick up on it at all. All he knows is that Hermione has finally given him permission to sleep with her, and his reaction is... I have no clue what to do, but I want to have sex, (laughs) so I'm going to go to my oldest brother who's teaching here at Hogwarts, despite the fact that he might have a social life outside of the classroom, um, and just ask him. And the part about the book was good, too, because that's, I mean, I've never had, I don't have other older siblings that would react like that, but it seems like something Bill would do. On Saturday night when I was listening to uh, episode 68, I was seriously scared. I thought Susan had committed some heinous, heinous crime, like gone over to the dark side of the force. And it was just, I mean, I was I was seriously worried about Harry. Like, is, is someone going to die here? And then I find out the heinous crime is that Susan has dumped him. Harry is not going to pick up his first his true love on the first or second try. It's just not going to happen. I'm sorry it doesn't happen that way in the real world. Harry Potter canon does not do this very well. I don't like the fact that he has the half relationship with Cho. I'm quoting here with my air quotes. He has a half relationship with Cho because Cho is associating him with Cedric and therefore wants to spend time with him because he was with Cedric in his last moments before he died. But Cho never really likes Harry in that way. She just wants time with Harry because he she's a, she is associated with him with Harry with Cedric. And then he finds Ginny and he falls madly in love and he's happily ever after. It doesn't work like that in the real world. People usually go through more than one relationship before they find who they're meant to be with. It normally doesn't happen when you're a teenager. It can, but it normally doesn't happen. I love Harry, I love Ginny, I love Harry Ginny, but let's wait a moment to see what happens before we go nuts. And in Susan's defense, I mean, it is a little frightening to have, you know, just come in from this battle. This is the first battle that you haven't grown up with Harry, you know, going after the Philosopher's Stone, then going into the Chamber of Secrets. You haven't experienced that. So this is your first major battle. Voldemort tries to kill you. You're gonna be a little gun-shy after that. Again, I really enjoyed the thick... Um, all of you podcasters, you make me crack up every single time. Um, I, there's a big stack of bananas, I'm at college right now, and there's a big stack of bananas on top of the fruit case at the market, and I cannot look at it anymore without cracking up. So thank you for that, because that has made my week. All right, lastly, looping out. Bye.